Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi, everyone. We're back with a post-World Series and Election Day special edition of 30 with Murdy, featuring someone who has bounced between the worlds of sports and politics as recently as last week. Chelsea Janes spent four seasons covering the Nationals' beat for the Washington Post. This year, she moved to a political beat, covering the 2020 presidential election campaign for the Post. That's kind of like me saying I'm going to switch from covering the Yankees for WFAN to training for a manned mission to Mars. But Chelsea has pulled this off no problem whatsoever. In fact, with a degree in history and international studies from Yale and a master's degree in communications from Stanford, I'd say Chelsea is probably able to transition to anything she wants. Her four years on the Nats beat included covering the end of Bryce Harper's career in D.C. and the beginning of Dave Martinez's career as manager in D.C. After covering two of the many failed attempts to win postseason series in Nationals history, Chelsea was able to climb back aboard the Nats run to history when she rejoined the Washington Post coverage of the World Series for the sports section. And now once again, with exactly 12 months before the next presidential election, she moves from the World Series back to the serious world. Chelsea made some time on this election day to chat with me about both her worlds, about diving back into baseball coverage and crossing into the political arena. We talked about the highs and lows of covering the Nationals to the challenges of taking those skills into political reporting. And most importantly of all, how talking to Scott Boris can train you for the next life. Here is my conversation with the very talented writer from the Washington Post, Chelsea Janes. So Chelsea, when you and I last spoke, it was about 11 months ago. We were at the winter meetings. We were trying to figure out where Bryce Harper was going to go in free agency. Not much has happened since then, has it? No, hardly anything. It seems like just yesterday. <laughs> so uh, explain to uh, I actually I think it was shortly after the winter meetings that you got moved over to the to the election beat. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that actually started and, and, and where it went. Yeah, we so I had been on the Nationals since um, 2015. And, um, you know, I think just generally we're lucky enough at the Post to have uh, a lot of people that like to cover baseball and so given kind of the grueling nature of that beat, as, as you well know, yeah. um, you know, they if they have an opportunity, they like to kind of rotate people in and out every, you know, four to five years. And I think um, I was at the end of my fourth year and um, they kind of asked if I would be interested in, you know, being a part of our campaign coverage leading up to the 2020 presidential election. And, um, you know, being here at the Post, obviously I'm surrounded by you know, some of the biggest names to have ever covered uh, presidential politics, politics mm-hmm. in general. Um, and it was sort of a, an honor to even be asked and that kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity. So we started that in January and um, I, you know, was out on the trail from January until late October when um, they asked if I wanted to come back and, and follow the Nets through to the World Series, which um, I was really grateful for. So I got to see them um, for those seven games. And now, I am sliding back into campaign coverage, which is uh, easier easier said than done. I think. Yeah, no kidding. So, what was what was it like getting back into the World Series? I mean, you know, you. I mean, I'll, I'll get to the season a little bit, but just the idea of covering the seven games of the World Series after having spent four or five years in the beat. What was the experience like for you? You know, it was 
it was pretty smooth getting back into it. I think um, it was, you know, for lack of a better phrase, like riding a bike. It was you kind of just get used to the deadline grind. And, and you know everybody, as you know, baseball is a fairly small world. So, you know, jumping back in, you kind of um, you know all the reporters and, and where everyone belongs, which is a nice feeling. Um, and, you know, the players, there were some that heckled me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> excuse me of bandwagoning and all this. But by and large, I think it was really nice to see some of them again. You said so much time with those guys, um, you know, during the course of a season and, and, you know, have these working relationships to build up. So it, it was nice to kind of see some of them again, um, particularly, you know, after, you know, some of the hard times that you've seen those people exist in to get to see them experience the thing they'd worked for um, forever was, was a really neat kind of thing to be there for. So how did you follow during the course of the season? Or, you know, did, did you, did you have time to keep up much with the nationals? You mean you spent four seasons, it was it four or five, uh, 15, 16, 17, 18. So yeah, four seasons with them. Um, did you have time to follow along like you would because it was your job or because you could view it, view it kind of as a fan? How did you find the time to keep up with the nationals and baseball during the season or did you? I, I definitely kept up. I definitely didn't do it to the extent that I did when I was on the beat. Um, you know, but I would watch games if I if I was home and, and able to do it, or you know, certainly via Twitter, sort of follow everybody in baseball world and see what was going on. And so I, I would say I followed it pretty closely and um, close enough to sort of know certainly about the arc of the net season and um, to sort of feel this. I could kind of secondhand feel everyone's stress, you know, when they were twelve games under five hundred and wondering. Yeah you know, who was going to get fired when. And, and you sort of, having gone through that as a beat writer, you sort of feel that secondhand stress and that, that tension that comes um, with wondering if, if everything's going to get kind of, uh, you know, torn apart there. But it, it was it was a really interesting season to kind of watch from afar and also, you know, just think about how I consume baseball, you yeah. know, when I'm not there every day. And um, it was kind of fun to think about maybe some of the ways I would do that differently going back now that I know how it's, what it's like to sort of be a, a more casual observer. Well, I, I want to, so tell me more about that. What did you find differently about consuming it as opposed to creating it? You know, I think the, the things that interest me, you know, I, when you're there every day, the things that become interesting to you are the very little things, right? The difference in someone's stance, the difference in, um, you know, how Max Scherzer is using, you know, X pitch, um, um and I think that stuff is still interesting to people who follow the game closely. But, um, you know, at the, the high elevation from which I was watching, it was, you know, just even just kind of more the arc of the, it's the big stories, right? It's the obvious stuff. It's, it's, yeah. Are they going to, who are they trading for? You know, is the manager going to go? If the manager doesn't go, what does that mean? You know, can a, can a 12 and 31 team actually win? What's the historical precedent? So it just, I, I'm sure that's how most people absorb this stuff, uh, which is probably a sign of some kind of mental stability. But, you know, I, I think it was really interesting to understand that you, you could probably never write enough about the, the big themes and the big, the big names. And um, that minutia is interesting to some people, but it's not crucial to understanding, you know, why this national season was so um, unthinkable, I guess. So, were you, do you, would you call yourself a fan during the course of the season? I'm definitely a baseball fan. Um, I, I, I'm not, definitely not a Nationals fan in any way. I yeah. think that sort of gets, as you know, it kind of gets beaten, beaten out of you a little bit when you're there sure. every day. It, it, it's, it's not actually that hard to not be a fan of the team you cover. But, but I think what, what I did notice is sort of rooting for individuals and yep. for people that I, I knew well and, and 
knew to be, you know, conscientious, hardworking people. And I, you know, I think that's sort of where I took more of an interest in just hoping those people did well and um, had success. So that's the extent to which I was a fan, I would say. But I, it did also free me up to kind of watch other teams and, and people I didn't get to see a lot. And I, I enjoyed just kind of following baseball more broadly. Um, for sure. Yeah. You know, I, I always tell people, you know, we root for people that we like, mm-hmm. we root for them to succeed. You know, that's, that's how we built our relationships with these guys and you'd like for them to do well. It's just like in any other walk of life. Uh, what were some of those areas during the course of the season? Like during the, during the summer months when you're doing your real job, which is much more important and you're watching the Nats who you know very well, what were some of those moments where those people that you were rooting for were kind of in your thoughts? You know, I think certainly when when it looks like Dave Martinez might get fired, you know, I, I knew him to be a very um, straightforward, uh, caring person. I think anyone around the Nats will tell you that he um, is just kind of a you know a, a rare breed in terms of his steadiness and his um, his compassion for people. And I think so when it looked like you know things weren't going to turn around for them, I think you do kind of think, wow, that's that's too bad that this is how his first you know managerial job will will end. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously it didn't. I think when, when I saw Scherzer hit the DL, um, he's somebody that I, you know, have, have seen since his first days in D.C. And, and you sort of always wonder when when the drop-off's going to come for a guy who's 35 and has pitched as much as he has. And so I remember thinking when he was on the disabled list for a while that, that maybe it was the beginning of the end. And, and certainly he's battled some stuff throughout the end of the season, but it doesn't look like he's anywhere near done. So mm-hmm. kind of moments like those where you, where you wonder. And, and of course, you know, checking in on Bryce Harper and seeing how that, that silly experiment <laughs> was going was, yeah. a, was a constant. You covered two teams that won won division titles, and they both lost in five-game division series. So as you're still watching, doing your normal job um, during the playoffs, and you see them in these stages of potential elimination, wild card game, division series game five, what What's going through your mind? Because, you know, you've experienced it at a little different level than the rest of us have. You know, I think the wild card game, um, I watched all those games in real time as much as I could. And I think the wild card game, um, it really felt pivotal. Uh, it felt like they had gotten the monkey off their back that they had. And even though they had, they still, you know, they were only in the division series after winning that game and they'd been there before it, it felt different um because it felt like luck went their way when they were able to score off hater and and kind of make something happen out of nothing yeah. and then i think as it got to be you know late in game five against the dodgers there, there was sort of a here we go again kind of feeling and like is it really going to go against them again is this really possible and then you know soto and um you know, they had the homers off Kershaw and they come back. So it was sort of a constant state of skepticism, but a general feeling that after that wild card win, something was different because they'd actually won a postseason game. And I, there was just this feel, maybe it was like me feeling it from afar that, um, and no one felt it there, but I do think there was a sense of like, all right, we've now won a playoff game. So we can advance. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I can't really emphasize enough how much when I was there, that was a source of stress that they had never really been able to do that. And then from afar to watch and kind of realize, Oh, you know, it really happens. But once that, once you get, get over that hump, things feel easier. And, and that was a real thing for this team, I think. 
I want to throw a couple of names at you. You mentioned Davey Martinez and Max Scherzer. I want to throw a couple other names at you and, and guys that you've gotten to know during the course of covering the Nats and what you thought of them in this postseason, how you viewed them in this postseason. Um, one of them is Steven Strasburg, the World Series MVP. Yeah, he he's really changed, I think, for years. Um, there was kind of a running joke in the D.C. media that everyone would write these the Steven Strasburg has evolved spring training story, right? Mm, that this yeah. guy who came out of college was like not so much antisocial, but just kept to himself, was never effusive, didn't seem to want the spotlight, um, kind of seemed really uncomfortable with attention, you know, that he has coming out of his shell. And it, it felt like every spring we wrote that because the pressure was off in spring training and it was sort of a running thing. And, and then this year, from afar, it looked like there had actually been some kind of substantive change. You know, you saw him dancing in the dugout and doing all these things that were sure. unthinkable for Steven Strasburg in his early years. And, and to get there in the playoffs and just watch him up, up close, watch the comfort with which he was operating, you know, watch the way he spoke, you know, on a podium to, to play off media courts and, and stuff like that. It was a real thing that this guy was more comfortable, that he had grown. That You know, and I think we all kind of forget that these are, these are humans and you know, just like we, you know, all kind of come out of ourselves or, or become more comfortable with ourselves in our own time, I think he just took a little longer than some of the people around him. And, and to see that actually materializing, you know, both on the field and off, I think, was um, was pretty striking to me. And I think probably part of the reason he was able to perform as well as he was this October, um, not that he'd been bad in October's past, but just I think that whole picture, you know, really sharpened for him and he was able to feel comfortable with who he was Um you know, when he's on the mound and then also off of it. Uh, how about a kid that the entire world watching the World Series knows how old he was because we mentioned it about a billion times. How about Juan Soto? <laughs> yeah, he's just a he's just a baseball player. You know, I, I think Juan Soto, I don't know what he'd be doing if it weren't for baseball, but it it was no surprise to me that he was unfazed by being in these situations. I think he is just built for them. Um you know, from the minute he came up, I remember very early, I guess it was just last year, mm-hmm. um, 2018, yeah. when he came up and he got called out on a pitch and, and argued with the umpire, which you don't usually see a 19-year-old kid do. And we asked him after what he was doing, and he was like, oh, I was just trying to help him realize that that was a, that was a ball, and so he can do his job better. And he wasn't being sarcastic. <laughs> it was completely yeah. earnest. It yeah. was like, he just, I was just trying to help. And, <laughs> and that's like sort of how he is, right? It's sort of like, I, I know this game better than anyone. And he's, he might be right, but he just he operates on that assumption and his talent bears it out. And I think, you know, you're just going to see a guy who's only going to get better, but he's certainly never going to be faced by anything baseball has to give him because he feels like it's his domain, and I think he's right. What about Ryan Zimmerman? He was far more emotive um, than I had ever seen him, which isn't to say he was extremely uh, emotive because he's just not that kind of guy, but I... You know, I think he's a guy who's really shoved off sentimentality over the years, really hasn't tried to make a lot about him, um, you know, is often, you know, kind of pleasantly sarcastic, um, you know, in terms of when he answers many questions. Uh, but you could tell he was actually really enjoying this and this meant something to him. And it's it's really hard to imagine, I think, especially for fans of teams who've been around, you know, say as long as the Yankees have, that. You know that he was there since day one. Yeah. Like he was the first star they got to have, and now to get to watch him 15 years later or whatever it is, lead them to a World Series. It's it's. I, I don't know how many 
people can say that, you know, that they got to watch someone have that trajectory. So I think he enjoyed it as much as everyone else enjoyed watching him. And, and from what I've heard behind the scenes, that was true, just in the way he handled his teammates and celebrations and things. I think, you know, he's always been the elder statesman of that team, even when he was in his 20s. And um, I think this, for a lot of people internally, this was this was very much about him. You know, obviously the Nats are world champs, and it's a great thing for everybody, for the team and the city. But the fact that they lost all the games in D.C., is that was that weird in any way to see, to cover, to try to comprehend that the team and the fans never got to enjoy a moment in that ballpark? It is definitely weird, but not at all surprising. I think <laughs> this has always been a team that just, doesn't handle pressure well. Mm. Uh, I don't think they handled it well this October either. I think that they, you know, found themselves in a situation where the pressure pressure was completely on their opponent. Um, and you can argue they put themselves in those positions. But I think, you know, from the moment Howie Kendrick hit his grand slam in game five, they looked up and were like, oh my gosh, we're beating the mighty Dodgers. And all we have to do is get three outs. And suddenly that feels easy. And, and they come out and they get a first game against the Cardinals and suddenly that feels easy. And, and they just, they, they were over and over again in positions where, you know, they were doing more than anyone thought they could. And, and when they got back to DC in the World Series, I think it finally hit that, like, oh, my gosh, we, we're here. You yeah. know, we got to put on a show. And you could see it. I mean, Anthony Rendon swinging at first pitches he'd never swing at. You know, um, just the general jumpiness of their lineup. And, you know, just all these things that sort of really seemed to kind of come out of the, the MO that they'd established, I think you can attribute to the fact that they really wanted to get wins for probably the best crowds they had ever seen in that park. So... It was weird, but it certainly wasn't surprising because I think that this team has just always had that that little bit of a stupor that it goes into when things feel really, really important. And um, the fact that they were able to win a World Series anyway is a testament to whatever, you know, deal with the devil somebody made because it's, it's <laughs> remarkable that they were able to pull it off. Are you, um, you mentioned Anthony Rendon. I didn't ask you about him, but are you glad that you don't have to cover his free agency all winter long? I am. I, you know, I think he's a tough read. Um, not that Bryce Harper wasn't, but I, I think Rendon's a particularly tough read and kind of hard to, to see what he'll, he'll be thinking. You know, I think Steven Strasburg, probably all things being equal, and they might not be, will, will want to come back to D.C. But, I, you know, Rendon is a guy who's never going to want the spotlight and will has actively campaigned against all his all-star candidacies before to avoid it. And so I'll be really <laughs> interested to see sort of how that plays out when, Presumably, some pretty big market teams are going to be in on him, and um, you know the Nats will be in on him, and you know it'll be really interesting to see how he how he makes those decisions. So, what's it like when worlds collide? The Nationals going to the White House, and the story becomes players who aren't going to go. And Sean Doolittle has some uh, eye-opening comments, and you know this is worlds colliding for you over what's been taking place in the last eleven months here. What's that been like? Yeah, it's been a little tricky to navigate at times. I think, you know, I've, I've kept away from writing um, about most of that stuff just because it's, it is a weird collision of worlds and um, there are people that are equipped to cover each of them. Um, but but watching all that happen has been really interesting and I think just telling of um, kind of a national mood in which, you know, you can no longer be apolitical whether you want to or not. And, um, you know, I... I don't think anything that transpired in terms of the Nationals and the president, whether it be their fans booing or Doolittle not going to the White House or the people who did go to the White House, uh, I don't think any of it's surprising. You know, it's a, it's a very liberal city. He was, the president was never going to be received well at National Park. Um, and Sean Doolittle is the kind of guy who has been very outspoken throughout um, about his political views. 
and the people in the clubhouse have not. And are, you know, I think there's some general support for, for the president there. So it's, it's just really interesting to kind of see not so much what happened, but how people react to it and, and the way they maybe expect um, a team in their city to um, think about the world when, when really these are baseball players and there's no, there's no test for them to, to pass that requires them to think a certain way, just like, you know, many of us don't have jobs that require that. Mm. So I think, it's really interesting to sort of just watch the reaction and, and how people grapple with watching their heroes and learning that maybe they think differently or don't. Chelsea, your your education, your intelligence certainly would seem as an overqualification for covering sports. Uh, but is there something about covering sports on a daily basis for a number of years that has helped you as you moved on to the election coverage? Well, first of all, that was very nice of you to say. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think everything. Um, you know, I, I think, first of all, like deadline writing is, is something that is a just absolutely natural and daily occurrence in sports. And when it happens in, in the site and politics, it's, it's a far more, more of a big deal and people really stress out about it. And I like to kind of chuckle about that. But I think everything. I think, you know, in, in baseball, I'm, you know, like a woman in my 20s isn't exactly in place in a Major League Baseball clubhouse. And yet, you, as, as you know, like, you weren't a major league baseball player either. And, and you have to go in and sort of build relationships with people that have had very different experiences mm-hmm. than you have. And I think that's very true. Um, that's something that you have to do when you're talking to voters, um, wherever you are, whether it's at a, you know, one of the, the president's rallies, whether it's at a democratic primary event, you know, th- there's just going to be a lot of people who come from different places. And I think um, that's something you learn acutely in a baseball clubhouse and you learn how to navigate and, it really helps you elsewhere. But I but I also think, um, as corny as it sounds, you learn how remarkable it is that there are places like sports where, where there is just kind of, you know, largely a political joy and, um, you know, emotion involved and mm-hmm. and sort of I've learned to sort of treasure those even more because I think it's it's remarkable what, what people are able to rally around and have something that's you know, ultimately low stakes, feel like high stakes and, and mean a lot to them. And I think it's a, it should never be discounted as um, as less in any way because I think it's it's just as important to have those outlets and it means just as much to many people um, that they're able to kind of watch these teams over the years and and you know have them be meaningful for them. You know, one of the things that I've always appreciated about covering baseball is that I always like when a season begins. I always like when a season ends. Uh, it's all within the same calendar year, so it's different than the other sports uh, in that uh, regard. And there's there's just something neat about putting the, you know starting the story up and putting it to bed. And I think that's true on a daily basis too, on the game schedule. Every day there's a distinct story, uh, each game, and it's in the context of a larger season. Uh, you can put a game story to bed, and you can kind of start fresh the next day. But it's all part of this one big picture. Is that similar in any way to what you're doing right now? It should be. Um, it definitely should be. It, it should be um, putting you know every day's little story into the context of a bigger picture. I think in politics it's harder to do that. I think you know in baseball, like you say, you know how a season begins and ends, right? Mm-hmm. You know when you can feel the changes coming. You can feel the winning streaks. You know you. So you can kind of provide the context of where this might be going um, with some confidence. And I think in politics, that's much harder to do, particularly yeah. lately. You know, that it's just there's no it's very hard to, you know, when the election is, but you don't necessarily know what the pivot points are going to be. You don't necessarily know, you know who's going to say what and what debate and, and, 
and what that might mean. There's just far more variables. And I think ultimately the biggest difference, and it sounds really simplistic, but has been absolutely maddening for me, is that there's no score yeah. in politics. Mm-hmm. And so you can look at polls all you want, but everything's negotiable. And and that leaves you in a place of, of it's it's not so much kind of, it, you're, you're trying to print what's real, but it, it's harder to, to decide what that is. And I think that that's like a really hard part is that everything in politics is slightly more arbitrary because you don't have numbers to tell you who won and lost until the day that it actually happens. So that's been really complicated. But I think broadly it, it should be very similar in that, you know, you put each event, day, each day's events in this bigger context. But I think sometimes it's just harder to do that when, when a day's events feel so all-encompassing like they can in, in the world of politics. Yeah, and you covered a, a sport that was moving in a certain direction with statistics and analytic data. And I mean, I, I assume that polling and the science that that has to be, you know, that's there's a similarity in, in how uh, both sides approach that as well. Absolutely. And I've, much like I did with baseball analytics, I've tried to learn as much as I can and, and be aware of what I don't know about yeah. about the, the numerical side of things. But yeah, it's, it's it's for sure. It's it's so interesting because there are definitely people that make a lot of decisions and draw conclusions based on polls, much like there are many franchises who will do a lot with data. And then there are people who are going to listen to what people are telling them and, and their gut and, and things like that. And it's really interesting to see that those are similar, those conflicts exist in many worlds, right? Between the numbers and, and, you know, emotional kind of reads on things and, and, obviously, you know, kind of mesh the two in some successful way. So no, it's, it's very similar in that way. And, and much like in baseball, I, I know that math is never going to be something I should uh, <laughs> myself on, so I try to avoid it when I can. <laughs> you mentioned something earlier about talking to voters, and it kind of struck me is that, you know, it's not a job requirement to talk to fans about the teams right. that we're covering. Now, listen, I work in sports radios, so it kind of is a job requirement. It's part right. of the, it's part of what happens, but it's not necessarily something that you have to do to feed your coverage. That's a change for you, isn't it? It is, and it's it, it's hard to know what to do with it, right? Like like anything. Like I say, obviously, were you to talk to fans covering baseball, yet their opinions would be subordinate to the score, right? Like, mm-hmm. they can't say this guy is the best baseball player of all time if he's hitting, you know, 100. You're not going to give that any credibility. But in a world without that score, opinions are all that matters. And, and what, like, how do you – what do you do? You know, and I think that's really a complicating factor and just makes me, you know, think about um, – how people think and, and why they support the things they do. And, and we don't really have to grapple with that so much in baseball. You know, it's, you know, people have weird stories of how they got to fandom or whatever, but by and large, you know, they like the team they like because their family likes them or they live there. And, and with candidates, it's so different. It's, it's often more emotional, It's you know, or because of some personal experience they had that drove them to think a certain way. And um, it's a lot harder and I think more important to understand, but also complicated because, you, you know, it's it, it's all opinion. It's all... Mm-hmm based on how people see the world. So it's it's fascinating, but it is sort of an added dimension that I've had to get used to and, um, you know, get used to getting to an event and not just watching that event, but, you know, making sure you take into account the people around, you know, that are there to see it. The uh, the feedback we do get covering sports, whether it's from Twitter or from websites or things like that, is, you know, a lot of it comes from the fact that you don't know what you're talking about. I'm right. Um, right. Uh, is is there anything like that or is, is it a little more civil in what you're covering or is it worse because there's so much more at stake and people get so much more emotional about it? It's much worse. Um, 
it's much worse. And I think that's probably right. That's probably how it should be. Because mm, um, yeah. like you said, the stakes are different. And, and in a lot of cases, sure, there are people out there yelling into the ether for no reason. But a lot of times people are, are moved to speak out or be angry by like actual very important and often traumatic things that have happened to them. And so, you know, like when that stuff comes at me on Twitter, there are definitely some stories in politics where, you know, I, I know that I haven't uh, opined at all. You know, I know some of the feedback isn't at me, but rather sort of what we're writing about. And that's yeah. easy to dismiss. But, but when someone is on there and, and sort of questioning why, you know, you wrote something a certain way, I think it's like, it's hard to hear, but it's also important to consider because, again, in baseball, they can yell at you that you don't know what you're talking about and you can give them a score, right. um, yeah. a number. But you can't do that here. And so it's really, I think, important to sort of internalize what you can without, you know, hating everyone. Um, yeah. But it's worse. And, I, again, I think that's probably reasonable, but it's it's definitely, like, something to learn to deal with because it's, it's not actually that easy, even if you think you have thick skin, you know, to, to sort of, absorb all that can come at you because you had to deal with max scherzer bryce harper um i have to ask this is there anyone like scott boris on the election beat <laughs> you know no <laughs> nobody like scott boris uh period and that guy i mean i you know he could he could do anything in you know you know that requires him to talk and be effective i think you know i it's mm-hmm. i think of him often on the campaign trail when someone says something and I'm, it's just you, you could see him in that world just as easily but there is nobody like him i have not found anyone like him and i'm sure i won't <laughs> yeah no kidding um my last thing for you chelsea i'm going to borrow from uh, the west wing and jed bartlett after the election <laughs> what's next yeah that's a great question we're we're figuring that out but uh we'll see for now it's just get to next november which is kind of a crazy way to operate but uh, that's that's what I got. I don't know what's next, but we'll see. I would never rule out baseball again, but um, it's also cool to sort of have a front seat to history, uh, for better or worse. So it's uh, for now that's that's where I am. But I'll probably start panicking about that very soon. <laughs> <laughs> I know there are people who um, get burned out of sports and move on to other things. It doesn't sound like that's the case for you. You had an opportunity and you took it, but sports is something you're you know, you're obviously would be entertaining again down the road. Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely don't feel burnt out on it or, or anything. So it's just sort of a, an honor to be around and to get to see the world series and do the, the primary has been just, I feel just incredibly grateful. And that, yeah, there's no way you can be, at least for me, burnt out on, on sports after watching, you know, that world series. So I would definitely be open to, to going back. Well, Chelsea, just remember, as people are panicking about deadlines on election nights and primary <laughs> nights, just tell them this is what we did every night in baseball, right? right? Exactly. And we didn't get special pizza ordered or whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> My thanks again to Chelsea Janes of The Washington Post. I love her unique perspective on this year's World Series champions, and I'm grateful she was able to take some time away from her real-world coverage to share her thoughts with us here. If you've missed any past episodes, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive on radio.com, Apple podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I recently went on a wonderful journey down memory lane to speak to Tim McCarver about the 60th anniversary of his major league debut to Ron Soboda about the 50th anniversary of the Miracle Mets to Kent to about the 40th anniversary of the We Are Family Pittsburgh Pirates and to Susan Waldman about the 30th anniversary of the earthquake that stopped the 1989 World Series. 
If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and review and all that jazz. And thank you for listening. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.